Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the final episode of Bookish. This is the last episode of season two. Season three is already in the works, so don't worry. We go out with a bang because my I really think I saved the best till last. This last guest is Eric Garcetti, who is currently mayor of Los Angeles. This was such a privilege and a treat and an honor. Mayor Garcetti is just the most elegant and erudite and lovely human being who was so generous with his time. Uh, his team because he's a busy man, had given me 30 minutes. So I had tasked him just to give me his three um, most formative books, thinking we'd never get round to cramming five into 30 minutes. Uh, and we ended up having more time than we thought. So we talked about his three books, and then we talked more about some of the follow-up questions, and he had some great and really unexpected answers for some of those. And as you can tell, I was flustered and was not expecting to have more time with him. You will get a measure of how lucky we are in LA to have him as our mayor. And um, I just hope he runs for president. I really do. There. I won't do any more political opinion, but <laughs> that's my preference. I want to thank a couple of people for this episode because it wouldn't have happened without my wonderful friend Yasmin. Yazi, you are the reason this episode happened, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your generosity in putting us together. That was really wonderful of you. And I'd like to thank the City Library, the Central Library downtown, who hosted us in their exquisite rare books room and laid out a beautiful display of rare books for us to look at and who made the time and the space available for us to do this recording. So that was a real privilege. So I thank the entire team at the library for doing that. I hope you enjoy this one. I loved, loved recording this interview and I think you're going to enjoy listening to it. Thank you for bringing yeah, sure, your coffees. Sure, I love that. I um, I don't insist that my guests do. And I'm so touched <laughs> that they do. All. It's lovely. I dig one of them up, and I found it. I have my book spread around, whether it's parents' house or the mayor's house I live in or my library and city hall they're kind of all over the place do you mind them being dispersed do you mind them not all being in one place yeah I'd like them to be together mm. but it's it's the life that I lead I like the idea of a few of them still at my parents house yeah because it, it makes that house still home yeah you know especially the, the kids books like little kids books yeah. are still all there totally isn't that so lovely now, now that we have a daughter you know I kind of try to pull those and read them every so often although kids tastes change I think or they have at least in the last generation I think I read books my parents did as kids but it's less and less I mean Dr. Seuss kind of can make that jump but there's all sorts of characters now and and, and it's much more franchise driven yeah I agree it's funny I did um, just this season I interviewed mm -hmm. some children uh, who were sort of aged between 10 and 12 mm -hmm. thinking it would be fun just to hear what they think of as formative yeah. what's yeah. shaping them and it was really interesting. I didn't recognize a single title. I mean, really? yeah, not really? one. And my little ones are five and three, so no, nice, I'm in nice. a different demographic. Right, right, but right. I was like, wow, I don't, yeah. I, I mean, I was at, at, I mean, hoping for a Harry Potter at right, least. Right, right. There was <laughs> not, no one. Way. There wasn't a single one. And I was like, well, people probably also panic. pressure. They're going to talk to you. They're like, oh, I'm not going to say Harry Potter. And like, oh, I, I don't know that that's true. Yeah. I hope at least a 10 year old isn't feeling that. Yeah, I really yeah. do. So you have boys, girls? I have a little girl who's five and a little boy who's three. Nice. Yeah. My daughter's six. Oh, she is? Yeah. What's she reading? 
she's reading Harry Potter. We're reading them to her. She's on the really? novel uh, third. Oh, wow. When did you start? Is it um, time? Is it? Yeah, you can start. Shall I go? Oh, okay. for sure. Right. We've been reading for a year and a half. She has two older um, siblings who are mm-hmm. foster siblings, uh, you know, foster children who are in their 20s who love, love, love. So they kind of introduced Harry Potter to her. And she'd also been here living in L.A. Uh-huh. and got her wand. At, yeah, you know, of course. <laughs> the world of wizarding. So... Um, we told her you cannot watch a movie until you finish a book. So great, she's, but she's just learning. There's to an read incentive, too. and her school is all Spanish, so she's learning to read in Spanish. So she'll be like, "Daddy, what is stone paper canife?" You know, like, I mean, like she she's good at English too, but she's she's Spanish is so great and logical. Yeah, and it is. is so confusing. So like, straightforward. N i g h negative. Yeah. No, that's no, like no night. No, sorry, darling. No. <laughs> Do you speak to her in Spanish? Do you mm-hmm. make it a bilingual? She house? gets annoyed when I speak in Spanish because and and they say children want one language out of your mouth. Mm. Like they don't mind somebody being completely Spanish with them and somebody else being English. Mm. They don't like people to switch. That's interesting. It's easier for their brain. So I, I did when she was growing up and when she was a baby. Then as I used English, she kind of, Daddy, you don't speak Spanish. You speak English. <laughs> That's funny. You know? <laughs> does Amy, does your wife speak Spanish? Uh, yeah, she does. I mean, she understands it, but she doesn't speak right. it much to her. I mean, she'll say a few words to her. Yeah. We had a babysitter for two years from Mexico, so an au pair who lived with us. So she spoke Spanish all the time. But her school is 100% Spanish. Oh, her preschool was 100% Spanish. So for four years, wow. she actually went to a school not that long ago, and they were speaking English. Mm-hmm. And she's like, What's happening? They're speaking English in the school. And I think she thinks that school is where you speak Spanish. School Spanish, of course. That makes complete sense. So your first book is Ficciones. Ficciones. If it is your first book, you you pick the order. I don't know. Yeah, sure. No, this is actually chronologically correct, the the first one. Yeah. I was so. First of all, can I just preface all of this by saying it was so fun to get your list? Can I tell you? It really, really was because. I do a deep dive whenever I do yeah. an interview and, and, you know, hope that I've read or heard of mm-hmm. or, you know, won or whatever. Yeah. I, I, I don't attempt this without having right. some familiarity with books. We haven't had Borges yet. I don't Great. think we've even had a South American writer, really? dare I say. Good, no, good. I may be wrong. Yeah. So avid listeners will correct me. No yes. question. But I have read Ficciones, but not mm-hmm. for years. Yeah. So that was fun to revisit. Yeah. Imagine Communities... I did not know, mm-hmm. and this was glorious, and yeah. we'll get to it, but the sort of interdisciplinariness mm. of it and mm-hmm. the fact that I felt I was reading something both economical and philosophical and with literary references and sociological, I just adored it. And then Marge Piercy, to my shame, mm-hmm. I had never heard of. So that was really fun, and I couldn't yeah. find a copy of yeah. Stone. I was going to make sure I said knife. it the right way around. Yeah. Yes, Stone, Paper, Knife. So I came to the library early, an hour early, yeah. so that I could check out a copy. I've already found poems of hers online and all right. of that, but I wanted to see what was in this volume particularly. Yeah. Anyway, just to Good, say... I'm glad. It, was, I, it was tough to pick three books. But. I bet it was. I relished, yeah, yeah. relished, relished it. I felt like, yeah. oh, this is, this is what I hope about this show, mm-hmm. is that I have a sense of who you are before I meet you, yes. was obviously willing to be pliant with, but that it's just the most mm-hmm. lovely way to sort of start yeah. lining the basket of yeah. a way of, is getting to know someone through their book. So Absolutely. thank you no, you're for so getting welcome. me you're into so, this. Thank you for giving me the excuse to add some punctuation to my run-on sentence of all. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I love <laughs> nice that. Nice to kind of take a moment and think. Tell me how you arrived at them. What? I, I kind of wanted things that reflected different currents and who I am and mm-hmm. my experiences. I, I I love the world of the possible. Mm. I think the world of the the conceptual and I love 
the world of the fantastical. Mm. And each one of these has that in a different way. And in some ways, they're the three parts of us as human beings. Mm. I would say that, you know, in many ways you have the heart with Marge Piercy. Mm. She just she she writes she's almost like a feminist um, Neruda. She she mm. speaks so uh, viscerally and beautifully and earthly, mm. you know, but also tells her story from a woman's point of view about love, about life, about relationships, about death and loss, but ultimately about the deeper parts of the heart, too, of our hopes and aspirations. Mm. And it's the idealism of this book of where it ends that really sticks with me always. Mm. Uh, Benedict Anderson in Imagine Communities is more the, the mind. Mm. And maybe even more more deeply, the soul. Mm. It's he, he. You know, for me, the nation is the family writ large, mm. and how we've come to accept that nations are just what we're a part of, and how unique that is in history, mm. and how we've come to this point, mm. I think, is kind of the evolution of of our technology and our cultural impulses together. And Jorge Luis Borges is the imagination. Mm. I mean, he is the fantastical. It's the non-linearity. It's everything you think the way it is, is not. <laughs> and so, you know, each one of these kind of the, the heart, the mind and the soul. Mm. And so I thought it was a good representative. Lovely. I love that you, <clears throat> thank you for curating it so thoughtfully. And I, and I love that you thought of them in a totality. That's uh, mm. so often linear, this, yeah, yeah. this process. Yeah. When did you read Friccionist? Do you remember who gave it to you? Or? I think I had to, it was assigned to me by Mr. Donahue, my Spanish teacher, I think in, in uh, high school. Oh, and, really? That's uh, a brave high school text. Yeah, it was. I think probably not the entire text, but um, a story or two. It probably was was, I might be romanticizing this, but the Library of Babel, the La Biblioteca de Babel, which is, to me, kind of my favorite short story is in it? the world. And uh-huh. here we are in a library. Here we are in the library. We're in the, I dare you know, meant the, to preface this by oh, saying yeah. we're sitting in the rare books room of the Central Library, which is just such a privilege yeah. and is wonderful. So the Biblioteca de Babel was it's, the one that... Yeah, it's, I mean, the library, it's a, it's a metaphor for the world. It's, you know, not even a metaphor. It actually says that the universe is made up of a series of interlocking hexagonal rooms, mm. an infinite number of them. Basic human necessities are in each room. And on four of the walls are 400 and something page books. Mm. And there's every single possibility in those books of... Including you know, gibberish, right? Including, including most of books them, that, gibberish. Right. Every language, every Shakespeare work, but off by a word. Uh, there's, in fact, a book that's probably in there that explains the library itself. That, you know, this mystical search for, if if, um, if only we could find that book, it would explain the library right. itself, which right. gets to, you know, our religious texts and attempts to explain the universe. And I just love the that ability of understanding infinity and inst- understanding the universe. And I think when I read that, I was hooked. Mm. And Ficciones and, and Borges, I just fell in love the first moment I, I read him. It, he's better in Spanish, but there's some really great English translations. Did I've you read him? It. So your Spanish teacher assigned it, so you read it in Spanish. Yeah, I read it in Spanish it, initially. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I think I bought every Borges book I could ever find when I was in my teens and early 20s. Did and I you? would take them, you know, on trips. I was backpacking in Europe or 
or in my dorm room in college. And, you know, they're all pretty dog-eared. And I loved, you know, he was a poet. He had some incredible essays. Ficciones is the one book I picked. It has some extraordinary stories, but Borges in general has. I mean, he connects pieces. There's one essay... Um, that's not in this book that was, what did he write it? Um, oh, it's the uh, La Muralla y los Libros, um, the hmm. wall and the books. And he talks about the uh, Chinese emperor Shi Huangti, who built the Great Wall of China. Uh-huh. And he thinks through, why would this guy build the Great Wall of China, order every book burned, hmm. and say that the, the time starts now? Hmm. And it was this interesting thing of like somebody who tries to contain the, the space, yeah tries to contain time mm. by erasing history and starting year zero. Year zero, yeah. And, you know, what was going through that ruler's mind? Did he think he could control the universe? And at the end, of course, the wall keeps nothing out. Right. Which is kind of powerful right. for our times <laughs> In current moment, yeah. But, but anyway, back at the Ficciones, I mean, the, the Library of, of Babel, the... I think the other ones, the Funes, the Memorias. Oh, Funes, Funes el Memorioso yeah. is, is the one that, I that's, love. That's, that's probably my favorite of his books, or that theme, which, you know, it's interesting. Borges himself, I think, had a bad fall hmm. when he was a young man mm-hmm. and hit his head. And so he starts with a, I think, a less educated, poor version of himself. Mm. And this, this, this man, Irenio Funes, who falls and then can't help but remember everything. Mm. In every detail. Um, every detail mm. of every day, of everything, and begins to drive him crazy because if you remember that well, you can't tell when you turn away from a wall when it was the color before right. and the color before that, or what time is it because I can see the clock and I can remember every possibility. You answer it, yeah. And I just love how he plays with that infinity and those different worlds and how he also takes literary stuff and he will allude to real things and make up fake ones and put them side by side, which mm. must have been so revolutionary. So mm. you don't know unless you look it up. Is he talking about a real philosopher or a fake Absolutely. One? Is it him or is it somebody else? And so he weaves reality and people in and out to the point where you don't care anymore. Yeah. You just accept that maybe the world isn't as we see it. Yeah, I agree. I find the experience of reading Borges <coughs> fascinating. And I think we come to it maybe, and maybe not in your case, mm. you sound like you were primed for it. I feel like I came to it too young. Uh-huh. And that rereading Borges has been a wonderful thing. I'm yeah. half Argentine, so yeah. he's part of my uh-huh. history. Yeah. And, and you know, he's like Shakespeare in Buenos yeah. Aires in that he's just everywhere. Yeah. You, every cafe is named after Borges kind yeah. of thing. So he's ubiquitous. But in a way, the ubiquity has been helpful because it has forced me to come back right, to him right. because I think I got baffled. I, too, mm-hmm. read Ficciones pretty yeah. young and, and let it wash over me in the yeah. sort of James Joyce way of, right. okay, I'll just I'll just take what impressions I can mm-hmm. from this because I can't – it's like an Isha drawing where yeah, you right, really right. can't tell right. where it begins and ends. But he has this I – I when I was looking up mm-hmm. um, the Ficciones, I found this lovely quote and he says um, – it comes from a weary man's utopia. He says, it is not the reading that matters but the rereading. Mm. And it's something we, I, mm. I talk about a fair bit on this podcast because I'm always curious when you read it and mm-hmm. if you reread it and what that experience yeah. was. Do have you I, – I do. And what's nice about it is, especially given my life and things where I, yeah. I start so many books that I never finish or that I'm in the middle of. I yeah, never say I haven't finished it. Yeah. 
yeah, sure, of course. It's an ongoing thing, yeah. Exactly. Um, But I can take a bite and finish it. And a a single story from Mm. Borges is as rich as a novel. Yes, it is. And it gives you the density Mm. um, that a much longer work would give. So I have. And I think that it's no less impressive, no less moving for me to read him today than when I was younger. I think when you're young, the world is full of possibilities. So Mm. he really does speak to somebody who's trying to figure out their way in the world, you know, but when you became a, become a parent or when you mm-hmm. have a career, like, will Borges still speak to you? And I think absolutely. And you're right. I mean, he's such a, a legend that he, I think, gets easily dismissed. Mm. You know, it's part of, he's part of the canon. Mm. You know, you read Neruda and Unamuno mm. and Borges and all those things when you're learning uh, Spanish literature. But I think for a, a new generation, they don't realize how re- relevant this is. Mm. I mean, when you think about the Library of, of Babel, this was before Google. This was before, um, right. you know, Wikipedia, like the, the, the idea of the infinity yeah. now, which we are manifesting. Right. He actually saw so many of these things. He's almost in some ways the right writer for now. It's much more than then. That's so interesting. That's so true. I hadn't thought of him as visionary in that way, but it's absolutely true. His huge range of imagination. And I always think there's something about these, it's a terrible generalization, but these writers with failing sight, these Miltons and these (laughs) these Borges, there's something about losing their sight that sends them in and lends them a, a sort of visionary. Well, and he also is such a mystery because nobody knows. I mean, he was married, but there's he, he, I think he told one interviewer he had sex once, but it was with a man, and he never, That's right. you know, married. And his mother was, you know, the person oh. who he mostly lived with. And yeah. you realize that for whatever reasons, whether he was gay and couldn't come out, mm-hmm. or whether he wasn't, or just asexual, he he compressed all of this mm. into a mind mm. and was able to write uh, that infinity of possibility that he must have not really had himself. He lived himself, yeah, it's so true. Tell me about your second book. This is Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson. Yes. It was published in 1983. When did you read this book? So this was um, also, I think, probably initially an assignment. Uh, Anthony Smith, who was a professor I studied under at the London School of Economics and kind of the godfather of nationalism studies Mm. um, in the early uh, 1990s when I was in Britain and when the fall of the wall and of communism was leading people to saying, oh my gosh, nationalism is the new Hmm. thing. Some were saying, oh no, we're going to get past nationalism now. Hmm. And it was a moment when the Balkan Wars were breaking out, when the Rwandan genocide uh, had happened, where all of these things that were showing tribalisms that had been long suppressed, Hmm. presumably by the Cold War, were beginning to bubble forward. And it's an incredible book because, as you said, there's poetry and literature in a book that's essentially about either sociology or political science. Mm. How is it that the nation comes to be? And, you know, the contrast of a state, which is a political entity, and the nation, the, as he termed it here, the imagined community. Mm. It's not a real community, right? I mean, Mm. the United States of America is so big, we don't all know each other, but we imagine that we're part of the same community. And other people do it on a micro scale in Belgium, you know, Mm. um, where there's two main language groups. And each one of these things that came together, whether it's Germany and Italy, whether it's the post-colonial worlds in Africa that were kind of arbitrarily chopped up, we over time imagine ourselves to be from these communities so much that we will fight and die for it. The most powerful thing, it almost doesn't replace religion, but it's almost as powerful, or it's the, the secular religion of modernity. And I loved the history in here, but also Again, maybe this is going back to Borges, the arbitrariness of it. Mm. Like, I'm a big believer life is full of luck and 
randomness. Mm -hmm. And I think here, you know, the one image that is really beautiful for me is from Walter Benjamin, his famous Angel of History essay. And he talks about it in here. The Angel of History, at one point, there's a piece in there that Walter Benjamin talks about a play a painting called The Angel of History. And can I read it real quick? Please, so, I'd be so delighted. So, so what he writes is that we all think in these nations that these histories are old. In many cases, they are. If you look at a nation like the Russian nation, there's, there's a long tradition. Um, if you go back to other places, they're brand new. I lived in Eritrea in Africa, and mm. Eritrea was literally a colonial right. creation, completely artificial, right. and yet people strongly feel that. And so he's talking about this painting, and he wrote that his face is turned towards the past. It's a painting of, a, of an angel modernist kind of with the eyes looking a little bit backwards. Mm -hmm. It says, his face is turned towards the past where we perceive a chain of events. He sees one single catastrophe which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead and make whole what has been smashed. But a storm is blowing from paradise it has got caught in his wings with such violence that the angel can no longer close them. This storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned, while the pile of debris before him grows skyward. This storm is what we call progress. Mm. And so the idea of taking That's the wonderful. kind of waste heap of history, which mm. is contradictory and, you know, uh, Serbian or Croat nationalist will say, oh, we've always been, as opposed mm. to the fact that those cultures intermarried and coexisted right. and tried to distill, again, a good lesson today in this nation too, tried to distill a purity that never really has been. Mm. The wind of time pushes you forward, but if you really could look backwards, you see, you'd see it's much more of a mixed past than the linear one we learn. Right. So to me, that's what I've always taken away from this. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you for that passage. It's really glorious. And I, I, it was so interesting. I think that was where I, I felt like, oh, I could see why this would be a pivotal book because it does feel like I, I could feel the muscles in my brain stretching <laughs> to include this idea, yeah. to question the idea yeah. of uh, the received history, to understand that, you know, nationhood is, is a collective imagined idea that we all participate mm -hmm. in that you know in the same but uh, and it's funny because I'd thought about this with sort of corporations mm -hmm. we I talked about this with my husband mm -hmm. the other day the idea that there is no place that is Cadillac there is right. just a there is there is a badge there is a product but there is and there's clearly a headquarters you've never been to Cadillac I've never been to Cadillac <laughs> it's awesome I bet it the is best leather seats it's smooth driving watch it watch it <laughs> next year's sponsors will be Cadillac exactly but I I am um, it's just a wonderful thing to have have your own understanding of the mm -hmm. world um, stretched, mm -hmm. I think. And I think that's what the great books or great ideas yeah. do for us. And they take what we assume about ourselves or our world and totally mess that up and tear it apart. Did I mean, it do that for you? Was it pivotal in that way? Was it was it an eye-opener? Was it? I don't think I was a hardcore nationalist before. Sure. But what it did do is, you know, I'd studied race too, which is this artificial construct over mm -hmm. time as well. And now people are kind of deconstructing, you know, everything from, from gender identity to obviously now ongoing national identity. And I think what, what it told me, it didn't make me want to run away from the idea of the nation. Mm. It actually did the opposite. It solidified that the nation is what we make of it. Right. And that we do need a vision. Mm. You, know, you know, the chaos of the world that, that Borges orders through a library 
nationalism orders by saying this is a place you belong geographically mm. and this is where you are chronologically. So it takes the horizontal and the vertical axes and suddenly grounds you mm. in this three-dimensional chaos that otherwise, who am I? Where do I belong? Mm. What history am I part of? Mm. We know that from families at the personal level. We mm. don't know it culturally without kind of the nation that we belong to or that sometimes we aspire to be a part of for right. the immigrant. And I think that really did change my perspectives and, and my understanding that we need to fill that. And when we don't fill it, maybe other people's vision of that nation does. That's kind of I think the, the last election was very much that. There was one vision that wasn't, that had really nothing to do with the national vision and mm. one that did. Mm. The one that did excludes a lot of people, in my sure. opinion. The other one just kind of bypassed it. And, and the one that won ultimately was the one that did at least fill it with something right. and enough people resonated with. And, and I think it's a lesson for anybody that if you think that politics is about your platform, if you think that national progress is about just policies, it's not. It's about understanding who we are. Right. And that there's a collectiveness and elasticity to it. I think that was the that, that what seems so interesting to and me. Plasticity. I mean, not in the negative sense of plastic, but it just, I mean, my, my academic work was in Eritrea. Right. Why would a nation half Muslim, half Christian fight and die alongside each other when their you know, co-religionists were across the border and the Christians in Eritrea could have just joined and stayed with Ethiopia, the mm -hmm. Muslims with the Sudan, but something, mm. just the Italians coming in, you know, putting down certain architecture, telling them they're part of an administrative area, mm. um, you know, the great cappuccino that they got I was in Asmara, say, I don't yeah. know what it was, <laughs> but they're like, we will stay together, we're not that, right. even though all of their ancestors had been right. allied with others. So yeah. it can change from generation to generation, it can be manipulated negatively, mm -hmm. but it can also be the positive glue that right. puts you together. Right. That's a whole nother podcast I want to do with just about you and Eritrea, I really do. Let's do it. I know I've got limited time with you, so I'm going to My ask favorite Eritrean books. I I want to hear those too. Let's talk about your last book, yes. which is Marge Piercy Stone Knife, a stone paper stone knife. knife. So it's rock, scissors, paper, but stone paper, stone, paper knife. Stone paper knife, exactly. Kind of, this was also um, published in 1983. Yes. So this was uh, Marge Piercy, I was introduced to by an author who at the time was not an author, but just a dear friend, Charmaine Craig. Mm. She's written a, a new book that just came out recently that's beautiful, Miss Burma. Mm. Uh, wrote The Good Men before that. And she said, we, we're, we're actually in Oxford. Uh -huh. We spent some time before I went to uh, Oxford to study more long-term in my summer between high school and college at something called the British American Dramatic Academy. Oh, did you? At Balliol College. So. Uh, Balliol, how fun. And she, yeah. um, she took a different book of Marge Piercy's called Available Light. Right. And started reading the, the poems to me, and I was maybe it was because I was seventeen, uh -huh. maybe it was because it just resonated with me. I I also was captivated by by Marge Piercy. Later, as I would read her books, um, I think I bought this one probably in college or a little bit after college. I would read her poems, and I've always loved poetry, but it's you know the combination of politics, of love, and life are tough to all pull off well. Mm. There's some poets who really do the political poetry well, and that's sure. kind of what they stay on. But they won't have the kind of introspective piece on their their own relationships or 
on where the world is headed. This does all mm. three. And the last poem in it, which is the, what the book is named after, Stone, Paper, Knife, I've actually used in speeches, political speeches. I can see this. Is, the, pa- the pages are all loose The man has the book open in front of me, and they're loose pages. I love it. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was uh, very lucky to be honored by the um, Kennedy family and the Kennedy Library with a, an award they give once a year to an elected official under 40 called the New Frontier Award. Mm. And uh, so Caroline Kennedy was there and Ted Kennedy was still alive. And wow. in honor of their father and brother, they gave me this award. And I was like, oh, my gosh, the pressure of <laughs> the pressure. American history Seriously. and this and that. And I was just a council member at the time. And wow. I, I think I ended or in, towards the end, I, I used the the end of this poem, you know, it's a, which starts very simply. And she says it's a children's game, stone, paper, knife, paper covers stone. Knife cuts paper, stone breaks knife. You lurch, guessing. You plot intentions, but you learn each other's, each one's strengths and weaknesses are light and shadows thrown by one source. And then she kind of goes through mm. a little bit of life and, and builds from the personal and from this game and talking about herself. And she's always very, um, she talks about her Judaism, she talks about her feminism, she talks about the, the relationship that she has. But then it comes to the really hardcore stuff at the end when she's talking about giving our government money to buy engines of murder, torture abroad, when she talks about the the evil tears in the, the sun into bombs, when she talks about kind of the environmental degradation, the public fanfare, all this stuff that's from the 80s, which mm. could be from right now too, she says, can hope be born from us sulking in corners. Mm. It's wonderful. And of course it can't be. And right now, you know, how many people That should be the logline of Twitter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> really should. <laughs> it's actually a pretty good tweet. Though. That's a good tweet as yeah, opposed to other I ones agree. we hear. And then she puts it on us. She says, who can bear hope? Or who shall bear hope? Who else but us? And yeah. cutting to the very conclusion, she says, who can bear hope back into the world but us? You, my other flesh. All of us who have seen the face of hope at least once in vision, in dream, in marching, who sang hope into rising like a conjured snake, who found its flower above timberline by a melting glacier, hope sleeps in our bones like a bear waiting for spring to rise and walk. Mm. And it is... That's beautiful. I, just, I still feel like the first time I, I, I read it where your toughest day, open this yeah. and recognize that she knows how tough it is. Mm and yet gives us no choice but to recognize that hope that sleeps in us, that it's our responsibility. And then, you know, she has a million other poems in here that are incredible about uh, life and love, about toes, you know. Toes and toads and (laughs) And all of it. This is what I loved finding her. I found this quote, which is, I don't know if it's from this poem, but uh, from this collection, but I just loved it because I related deeply. It says, at 2 a.m. I become Sylvia Plath. At 3 a.m. I turn into Anne Sexton. At 4 a.m. I turn into my mother. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought it was a really, really good timeline. Absolutely. Um, and the other thing that I'd yeah, read, which I great. adored, was I am the wanting this body yes. grows around. Yeah. And that is from this collection. Yeah. 
Margaret Atwood wrote a beautiful review of this, of uh, Marge Piercy, and she said that if poetesses were, I'm going to horribly uh, bastardize this, but if you could divide them into prioresses or wives of Bath, which seems a really, (laughs) really cool distinction to draw, then uh, Marge Piercy is definitely the wife of Bath. And I agree. I felt that. I was like, yeah, Mary Oliver is is a prioress and Marge Piercy is a wife of Bath. That's beautiful. I've never seen that. That's amazing. But the... um, read it this yeah. is oh, I wanted to yes either I, I, I read that. it I think I have it. that you probably have it better too. than I do yeah I know mm. oh, it's from try, trying to attract your attention without being too oh, obvious yes will you read it sure please do I am placing placing my body before you like a bowl of apples like a bunch of grapes I where I am I am inside waiting I am the fierce hollow I am the wanting this body grows around. I mean, that's, that's everything. Right? I mean, if I were a girl who got tattoos, that is the tattoo <laughs> I would get. I am the wanting it's this never body. Too late, you know? <laughs> it may never not too be. Late. Um, There's I have, a guy I know in Venice. He'll hook you up. <laughs> hook me really up. Good. Do it. <laughs> I have a really tough question for yeah. you, which is you're going to a desert island and mm-hmm. you can take one book with you. It doesn't have to be one of these three. What book might it be? I, I thought you might ask. <laughs> I love that you did your homework. So I want to see what I, what I had thought. <laughs> I, I put The Book of Sand, which is also oh, Borges. Borges, yeah. Or Atlas Obscura, which oh. is a nonfiction book right now of the most obscure places uh, with the most interesting stories on earth. And I think that sounds the wonderful. book I, I was most in love with as a kid was the National Geographic, Our World. Uh-huh. We just got to read about every country. And I read that thing till the spine fell apart. And this is kind of a more modern and more obscure version of that. It's the entire world by strange location. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. That sounds incredible. But I think if I was on a desert island, I'd be really pissed. I couldn't get off of it and visit those. So. <laughs> Let's go with Book of Sand. Okay, we'll take Book of Sand. Um, This is a tough one. Um, Is there a book that you lie about having read? Is there a book that you pretend you've read, but you didn't actually quite finish it? I think I did read it, but I'm sure I didn't read it. Um, Was the Jay Brownowski's The Ascent of Man. Oh, which was like, I, it was the thickest book I could find in my parents' library. In sixth grade, I wanted to impress people that I had read it all. So I think I, I did flip every page. But I remember it's kind of about the how human beings and life evolved. And I just felt so smart telling people and so showing good. them the book. But in the end, I doubt I read it uh, in listen, a real sense. I'll take it. I'll take it. Most people say Ulysses, so it's fun oh, to have a new one. I um, lie about that. What's the uh, book or author that you feel most guilty about not having read? Oh, easily Proust. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I, especially because my dear friend Ingrid Vassanar, who I studied with at Oxford and is a Proust scholar, uh, finally gave me a volume, Proust, when I left Oxford, and she said, this is for you. Mm. And she even wrote, like, the easy guide to Proust, all this stuff, mm-hmm. and I just can't crack it Yeah. Open. I'm like, there's so many things in life that seem more exciting than that. I agree. I'm I've with looked you. a couple times at the first couple pages. I'm like, why? It's like, I've run a marathon once. I'm really glad I did it, and I don't need to ever do ever it again. Ever do that again, no. I don't need to do Proust No, you know what is really good? Do you know the English philosopher who has the French name Alain de Botton? Yeah, do you know sure, who I mean? Sure, right, yeah. so he wrote that wonderful book, How Proust right. Can Change Your Life. Right, exactly. That's what you read. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> you read that. It's basically the educated exactly. cliff notes. Exactly. And it tells you well, how to change when the Netflix life. series comes out. Yeah. <laughs> that will be a very, very long series. Yeah, that Guaranteed will. 10 seasons. Oh, God. Yeah, it'll never end. <laughs> um, 
someone told me the other day that there was a really funny South Park cartoon where um, there's a Netflix, it's in the offices of Netflix, and someone answers the phone going, good morning, Netflix, you're greenlit, which I just thought was so good. That is awesome. So it's, it's the library of Babel, but it's yeah, going to be exactly. Netflix. It's just the, the enormous hexagon library that is Netflix. Do you have any aspirations to write? I doubt you have any time. I'm amazed you're even here. But does, is writing something you yeah, think about? Um, I do. I, I've. It's funny. I've been given offers to write books, contracts mm-hmm. even sure. before, and I didn't feel I've been ready. I mm. didn't feel I'd, I've done enough with my life. I'm not going to write a reflective memoir in my you know 30s when somebody first approached me. I want to live more life, but it's also... Haven't you traveled to sort of 80 countries or something? Isn't this, yeah, isn't I've traveled a lot. I okay. mean, no, I've certainly seen a lot of the world, but uh-huh. I want... It's not about the places you've been or no, the experiences I you've know. had. It's about the wisdom. Sure. And that's, I'm finally at a point where I think I could mm. write. Mm. Although, of course, as you said, I have no time to. And I'd really like to... You know, there's like one book. I know one thing sometimes you ask is, what, what book do you wish you had written? Mm. And I'm so glad a dear friend wrote it. Um, mm. John Bemelman's Marciano, who's the uh, grandson of, of Ludwig Bemelman's, who wrote the uh, Madeline. Oh, Madeline, series. of course, yes. He's continued the Madeline series. He taught himself how to paint like his grandfather, and he's added some volumes to that. But he also is a really accomplished writer. He has a great young adult series called The Witches of uh, Benevento, mm. um, which are doing amazingly well. But he does some nonfiction, too. Mm-hmm. His first book, uh, I want to get the name right because it, it were two of my favorite uh, uh, Anonymous, anonymous mm-hmm. and then he did toponymity and, mm-hmm. and both were about like Anonymous, anonymous were like how did were things get named like the Earl of Sandwich and explains like in two pages Great. where he came from and toponymity is is places um, and why they were named that but the book he wrote that I really would have loved to have written is whatever happened to the metric system hmm. When we grew up in the United States, I love that that's the book you in, wish the, in this late seventies, <laughs> early eighties. It was like, don't worry about learning the imperial system; it's dying out. The metric system is coming. Uh-huh. Jimmy Carter is going to bring it, uh-huh. and then it never happened. Right. And then he goes back, and I've always been obsessed with. This is probably why Borges and and Benedict Anderson's books I love so much with time, space, calendars, watches, how we bound things, and how we measure them. Mm. And in this book, he goes through the whole history of measurements. Mm. So um, how the imperial system is a human system. The metric is a digital one. Mm. Um, so, you know, besides 10 fingers, there's nothing about the metric system that's very easy right. or intuitive. Whereas, you know, dividing by 12 means six, four, three, all go into it. You can go into a marketplace and say half of a half of a half. Mm-hmm. And yes, you're at an eighth, but that's not arbitrary. Right. It's actually something you can relate to that fathoms. Uh, do you know what a fathom is? No. It's the measurement from your heart to your fingertip. No. So when you say oh, it's 10 fathoms, so it's because somebody on a boat was pulling the anchor up roughly from the end of his fingertip to his heart. Whoa. One, two, three. Oh, the, the depth is three fathoms. And so he explains, you know, when the French Revolution comes, how they also declared year zero. Um, they tried to make, you know, days into 10 hours sure. and months. and But some of the things did stick, like the metric system. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a fascinating history of, again, those things we take for granted are like logically yes. thought are sometimes the accidents of history. Yeah. I love that. The <laughs> fathoms thing. I, my mind's reeling. I keep thinking of... Um, 
the tempest full fathom five thy father lies and of his bones a coral made and I'm thinking I wonder if Shakespeare knew that he was talking about the distance between a fingertip and a heartbeat I think they did then because you know foot to foot uh, an inch was the The thumb thumb, and almost all of those measurements have had something to do with a human being so even if it wasn't exact you could picture it and estimate it right away my my daughter's like this you know it's funny she's like uh, daddy how long till whatever till Mm. we go to the movies I'm like oh it's five hours how long's five hours and I have to tell it to her in movie or <laughs> TV <laughs> times it's like, yeah, it's like exactly <laughs> and she understands it because it's, it's from her world as opposed to four hours can you just please memorize what four or five hours is right 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 that's uh, so great yeah. it's so funny I remember not knowing that because in, in Spanish you say an inch is a pulgar yeah, right? right and and I didn't know I don't think until I heard it in Spanish it didn't sort of occur to me that that was what the measurement was it was so right. fun when I finally made the link of like right. oh that's right. that's where that comes from do you know what was the last book that made you cry do you cry in books are you a- yeah sure um, I think it's Miss Burma the book that oh, I was talking right. about that, that Charmaine Craig my friend wrote right. um, it's an incredible story it's a it's a novel but it's based on her mother's life her mother who was born in Burma mm. to a Indian Jewish businessman and his Karen wife Karen mm. is the largest ethnic minority in Burma mm. and it goes through World War II and the freedom that was promised to the Karen by the British. They were supposed to have their own country. Mm. Um, they helped the Brits yeah, out Brits in were World good War II. <laughs> and they didn't. And, and this dictatorship that took over and the prejudice against the Karen. And her mother, and this is a real story, as a young woman became Miss Burma. Really? Um, and then a movie star there. But she was from this minority, a double minority, Uh because she was half Jewish, too, that the Burmese government uh, was not upholding. But I think this was their way of saying that they they were inclusive. And then she married a rebel leader and uh, got pregnant, lost a child. It's just such a beautiful story. And Mm -hmm. I know her mother as well. And I think it was the combination of the personal and just the... Mm. You know, these, these stories that I think um, we don't realize two generations ago, the depth of suffering that people had sure. and the challenges that they had and that they faced not just once in their life, but right. sometimes five or six of these. And mm. it's a beautifully written book that ultimately ends with some hope in the end. Mm. Sounds lovely. It's a really great book. Yeah. I also love reading. I am not nearly as well-traveled as you are, and definitely not since having tiny children, but yes. that really puts paid to that. Mm. I love finding books that, really open a world yeah. to me that, that it, there's a culture that I know nothing yes. about. I'm, I'm thinking at the moment, I'm reading a book called The Spirit Catches You When You Fall yeah. Down which mm-hmm. is a, a beautiful, beautiful book that uh, one it? um, it's actually set here but it's about yeah. the community in Laos whose name mm. I'm now completely blanking Mong? on despite being, Mong, yes yeah, exactly, Mong, of yeah, course yeah. you know, <laughs> you speak Hmong, I don't, no, I don't get doubt for a second um, it's about a Hmong child who, yeah. f- who had a severe epilepsy and sort of mm. slipped through the cracks here mm. and uh, it's this journalist who's written this extraordinary non, non-fiction non book and um, epilepsy is called by the Hmong it's called the spirit catches you when wow. you, and you fall down wow. and what they perceive as this spiritual journey mm-hmm. and that epilepsy is a privilege it yeah. is actually a, wow. it is a it's considered uh, a child with epilepsy is considered yeah. among the most blessed whilst still needing enormous care of course, of course. Um, and that the the dissonance between how the mm-hmm. extremely well-intentioned Bay Area community viewed this and needing to intervene and right. how the Hmong were like, no, she's 
she's fine. We just need to keep her safe. So yeah. a, a really provocative, but yeah. wonderful book. Sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. I got another. Well, last question for you, and then I'll let you go. We're good with two. Two more. Two more, yeah. Yay, so great. Two. Which oh, ones? Two minutes. Can, oh, two minutes. Two minutes. Well, let okay. me squeeze in. <laughs> All right, I'll do one more. Okay. Um, uh, or do you have a question that you, tell me one that you would like, because I see you've well, I don't know. I, I, Is I there one I, that you I, wanted I, to tell me about? Um, last last okay. you threw across the room, figuratively uh, or not. <laughs> well, the, the, there's always, what are you reading now? Yes, right? what are you reading now? Tell me that. I'd love to know. So I'm, I am like one of those chronic, like six books open at the same yes, time. Yes, I'm the same. So I've kind of, kind of, my political books that I'm open the road to Camelot, um, oh, which wonderful. is about uh, the years ahead of Kennedy's mm-hmm. run for president and the passage of power, which is in the assumption of the presidency by Johnson. So mm. I kind of have those back to back. Towers of Gold, which is a beautiful, beautiful book. I have my trio of LA books that I've actually, I'm about to finish Towers of Gold and finish the other two. Francis uh, Dinkelspiel, it is the story of German immigrant to Los Angeles, mm. who founded the first bank here and helped build California and eventually mm. Wells Fargo. It's the most extraordinary uh, story of this town that is older, as I was sharing with you, than Washington, yeah. D.C., but didn't really grow for 100 years much and was right. a dusty, dusty outpost and how we got to where we are. Thirsty, which is a book about William Mulholland mm. and how we brought water here. And just, you know, you, you think that challenges are tough today to do infrastructure. What people did right. to build cities... Right. I mean, they didn't. Sure, they probably didn't have as many environmental regulations and red tape. Sure, but, but they just got it but done. They got it done, yeah. And then Eternity Street is the late or mid 1800s when the murder rate was a hundred times more in Los Angeles than what it was what it is wow. today. You almost had a one percent chance of getting killed on the streets wow. of L.A. It details the culture of violence that was here, the oppression of the native peoples, the largest lynching in American history, which people don't realize was here in L.A., wow. of the Chinese residents at the time. It really shows you what a wild place L.A. was, but also how how this now third largest economy in the world got built. So those are, and then my, the one that I can't wait to crack open is Something Wonderful, which is a book of uh, about Rogers and Hammerstein by Todd Purdom. Oh, great. Um, and, and the one that I will never get to but I totally aspire to is The Dying Grass is the William Fullman book it is about Chief Joseph what I keep reading about it it's the most difficult read you'll ever read and the most satisfying one you'll wow, ever read wow you are so ambitious and it's like, I don't know, it's like 1500 so pages but Chief Joseph was the last chief to surrender to the Americans and it's kind of through his eyes what's happening to his world and his people. I have read about this. I have read about this. I tell you what, I'll read Proust. You read that. I'll let you get back to it. We'll make a deal. I'll do that. We'll we'll get back together for the next episode. This was such a pleasure. Thank Thank you you. so, so much for doing this. It's really been an honor. I appreciate it. It was just wonderful. Awesome. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that interview. I love doing it, as you could tell. I really could have sat and talked to the mayor for another hour. I wish I'd asked him for two more books. But one of the things that I loved about meeting him was finding out his authors, as I said many times, I think, in that interview. And Marge Piercy was the most wonderful discovery. I'm a little bit obsessed with her. And while I was reading about her, I stumbled on this poem. And I'm going to take the unusual step of sharing it with you because I think it's a beautiful poem. And I think it sums up Mayor Garcetti and who he is and who, uh, what he does and that he is someone who puts his money where his mouth is and really does the work. And so I'm going to share this poem with you and I hope you enjoyed season two and spread the word for me and review us and rate us on iTunes, please. That helps hugely. 
and season three is in the works, so don't worry, I'm all over it. All right, I'm going to read you this poem by Marge Piercy. It's called To Be of Use. The people I love the best jump into work head first without dallying in the shallows and swim off with sure strokes almost out of sight. They seem to become natives of that element, the black sleek heads of seals bouncing like half-submerged balls. I love people who harness themselves, an ox to a heavy cart, who pull like water buffalo with massive patience, who strain in the mud and the muck to move things forward, who do what has to be done again and again. I want to be with people who submerge in the task, who go into the fields to harvest and work in a row and pass the bags along, who are not parlor generals and field deserters, but move in a common rhythm when the food must come in or the fire be put out. The work of the world is common as mud. Botched, it smears the hands, crumbles to dust. But the thing worth doing well done has a shape that satisfies clean and evident. Greek amphoras for wine or oil, Hopi vases that held corn, are put in museums, but you know they were made to be used. The pitcher cries for water to carry, and a person for work that is real. My thanks again to Maya Garcetti for giving up his time and for introducing me to this wonderful poet, and in particular, this gorgeous poem. I just had one more thing I wanted to add. Uh, There are some thanks that are due to some people for helping make this podcast what it is. The podcast is edited by Arlil Rodriguez. Thank you, Arlil, for making this seamless and easy and doing such beautiful work. Also for keeping a full list of all the books that are mentioned. You can all go to www.bookishwithsoniawalga.com and you will find links to every single book referenced, not just the five, but every book referenced. Um, So thank you to Arlil for that comprehensive list. Thank you to Tiffany Williams for updating the website and helping me with all the social media stuff that I'm useless at staying on top of and for navigating Twitter and Instagram when we all know I have a slight terror of them both. Thank you to Joe Batance as ever for being my mentor and producer and friend and ally and person I call at 3am with technical glitches. You're amazing, Joe. I couldn't and wouldn't do this without you. And thank you as ever to my lovely husband, Davy Holmes, for the glorious theme music. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>